Welcome to Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast, where we are amplifying the Black adoption conversation with Black adoptee voices and Black families at the center. We're your hosts, Dr. Sam and Sandria, two Black adoptees adopted by Black families still trying to make sense of our adoption journeys. We have all been touched by adoption, whether we realize it or not. You just don't hear our stories until now. Every birth has a story. So So let's let's go go black black to the the beginning. Hey, hey, welcome Black. It is Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast. I am Sandria Washington. And I am Dr. Sam. I feel like tonight's guest is going to take us on a wild ride. We don't know where this conversation is about to go, but guess what? We're here for it and we're going. We're going to get into three of our favorites, secrecy, stigma, shame. Tonight we have joining us Darius Coquit. How are you, Darius? I am doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. And I wish y'all could see the video because Darius is giving us <laughs> looks at the, the hair. I am just here for it all. I wish y'all could see it. Come with a fresh lined beard. Yes. <laughs> Look, any, anytime I can crack out my good old curly, you know, modern day Frederick Douglass, I'm gonna go ahead and do that for you. I'm gonna do that. And 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 I'm I, don't, I ain't scared. I ain't scared. Say what you gotta say. <laughs> right. This conversation was uninhibited. We saying all the things. Tonight. All of them. All of them. So we're going to take it black to the beginning as we normally do. And we want to hear a little bit about your family growing up. Were you an only child? What was the family dynamic? Well, for, for starters, I grew up in a family initially where it was just myself, my mother, and my father. My mother was on a constant search for faith and family. That was just, those were her two big, you know, monikers. My father, he was a revolving door dad. Let's just call it what it was. He was more in love with his addictions and the outside world than he truly was with his family. I mean, I do believe he loved us, but there was a thing that was holding on to him. A couple of things that were holding on to him. We started out up until age 11. I was an only child. And then my mom jumped into fostering and adoption. And, or, I mean, that's what I knew at the time. Cause growing up, I thought, Hey, I'm the original. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, about age 11, there was more fostering and more adoption. We had, I don't know, four or five different kids come in and out of our lives. And then eventually my mother adopted my little brother who actually just passed away this past March. Um, and my little sister who just turned 20, she came to us at a week old, um, in 2001. So uh yeah i uh that's that's kind of how we you know all work (laughs) yeah yeah so when your your mother started fostering and adopting how was that presented to you did you have an understanding of 
this is what it means to be adopted? And how did you look at your, your brother and your sister? Um, honestly, because I had been an only child, for me, it was a thing of, you know, you've watched all those movies growing up where you know the, the new child comes into the house and it's like oh yay i got a bro i got a little brother a little sister i'm so happy you know all of that <laughs> all that stuff that we you know we've been pumped and primed to take in and that's kind of where i was even though i was on the south side of chicago inglewood stand up i was still kind of i guess reared in this way where like the Lifetime Hallmark movie could actually be a thing if we tried hard enough. We were trying to be the Jeffersons on a good times budget. I have no qualms about saying that. And honestly, for me, it was a thing of, okay, new kid in the house, somebody who I can help bring up the way I was brought up. Because honestly, with my dad being Mr. Revolving Door, it was up to me to be the father figure or the older male influence for them. There came a point where my mom was working more than she was home. So who was in charge? The latchkey kid who grew up here first, you know, and that's what it was. I never felt like my foster or my adopted brothers or sisters or any different than me. They were my brothers and sisters. You were here. You were part of this family. I was going to protect you because that's what we do. That's just what it was. Sure, there were points of contention with some of the foster kids, but you know, nothing that was like a real honest to goodness challenge in that way. Nothing that would alter or curse our family dynamic in any way or make us feel some kind of way with them being there. You know, um, kids come in, they've gone through things. They've had troubling experiences and it's our job to not only take care of them, but to also show them we not them. We're not the people that treated you the way that you feel, you know, um, has hurt you or has pained you or has caused you sincere amounts of trauma or, or anything like that. You know, we, we just here to love you. And that's what it was. So your immediate family was pretty small, pretty tight knit. Your, your larger family, like were there cousins, aunts, uncles, like how was adoption and fostering just kind of treated within the family at large? Uh, something that we often said was that we were the black sheep of the family. And we said that because they would plan things or they would do things and then we wouldn't know about it. We were only included when it was time for family reunion and everybody had to bring those ducats for wherever we were going. Um, you know, that kind of situation. But, you know, my mom, she was deeply involved with her side of the family. My dad's side of the family, there were really mostly older relatives and estranged cousins. So on his side, the older folks had all passed away by the time I was 11. And we were getting into that phase of life. And um, everybody else who was within my age range or within my parents' age range, we weren't really in touch with them. They had all gone their separate ways. They weren't really talking. You know, it was only if somebody had passed away and it was, you know, a, a huge thing because those folks were all connected. Did we ever really see each other or have contact? And even then, sometimes it was very limited. There was an uncle that that you grew up with. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about this this uncle and your relationship, where, where he fit into the family. Growing up, this is how I understood it before the plot twist reveal happens. Growing up, 
the he he was for all intents and purposes a cool uncle he was this dude that wore like you know those cool ass business hats all the time and you'd always saw him in a suit and he listened to jazz music regularly and not just as an alternative um you know i i we were in my family my uh, immediate family i was raised jazz blues gospel like that's that's what kind of reared me as an individual but I get in his car and I'm hearing Miles Davis all the time. Uh, so, you know, it was that kind of thing. Very suave, very much a womanizer. We knew what it was. I mean, <laughs> hey, call, call a spade a spade. And he was around for a great deal of my youth. And then his mother, my grandmother, passed away. And within that moment, like that moment in time, she passed away in um, July 4th of 94. Within that pocket of time, he started acting weird and being very off-putting. And he was handling her affairs when he shouldn't have been. It should have been like, you know, both of us, both families, you know, involved, him and his brother. And it, it just wasn't happening the way it should have. My vivid memory of him in my youth is him at the cemetery on his knees screaming my grandmother's name in her plot and just doing it over and over and over again. And my family just walking me away. Um, and, and, and again, the whole thing was he was this person that I kind of respected and kind of had, you know, a real cool relationship with in that way. And then all of a sudden, when that stuff happened, it all stopped. And he became estranged, moved from out of the city to like Skokie or Evanston or something, was just completely away from everybody, had gotten married, had another child, that marriage ended in divorce, got married again, that marriage ended in divorce, it was a cycle for him. But all, but throughout that time, it was just him and his daughter. And that's what we knew. We knew that they were all the way over there, all the way out there, way up north. <laughs> and if, if we wanted to see him, uh, I guess we could possibly maybe at one point in time set something up, but nobody really ever knew if it would happen, if he would pull through or he would show up and be present. It wasn't until my teenage years that we actually reconnected with him because I invited them over for Thanksgiving. And this was before all the things went down that we'll talk about in a moment. But beyond that, yeah, that's that's kind of the long and short of how our dynamic worked early on. So I have some questions. If we can just yeah. back up a little bit. When you were talking about your siblings that came onto the scene. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your siblings then interpreted the family dynamic? Because it sounds as if like they were brought into your household old enough where they had already had relationships with families if they were being fostered. And now they're coming into your particular family within your dynamic, but then also, as you had stated earlier, your family was the black sheep of the family. So I'm just curious as to how your family dynamics mesh with theirs, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, make this whole complete picture of what family was like for them and you toggling back and forth. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll try and take it in steps. So um, at age 11, I had two foster sisters come in and they were around my age. I think one was like two or three years younger than me and one was my age exactly. And that in itself was an odd experience because they had you know, been at the age that they were, they had, like we said, gone through things. They had been through things with their family. And actually because they were old enough or at the age that they were, they were kind of in touch with their family here and there. It was kind of like, um, if I'm, I'm trying to, you know, remember this properly, uh, but uh, they had been bounced in and out of the system because of how their fam, how their family, their birth family was operating. So coming into our home, it was like, yeah, we're not going to be here long anyway, because we're going back. That was just the way that they came in and that's what they presented and that's what they knew. So for them, it was just like, okay, hotel temporary stay. That was how they acted. For us, it was like, okay, well, we don't know that, but you know, we still gonna treat you like you want us, even though they weren't necessarily feeling that one of us kind of thing. After them, after they left us, there was my little brother who was adopted. He came in at age seven and he had been to, from the, from, from the time he was born until the age of seven, he had been to, I think about 10 or 12 different homes. Hmm. So he was, you know, all over the place and everybody just wanted to call him a bad child and no, not really figure out what's going on with this child that makes him act and react in the way that he does. And that was where my mom was. It was a thing of, okay, does he need counseling? Does he need medication? Does he need something that's going to, you know, what is it? What is it? That's the thing I can pride my mom, pride myself on my mom being, and she's a problem solver. She's going to figure out, okay, well, what needs to happen? So that was where we were with him. Then there was another uh, uh, foster child. He was actually somebody who was, um, uh, related to someone from our church. They needed somebody to take him because otherwise he was going to be lost. And he came in, he stayed with us, I want to say for about a year. And then he and my little brother, my adopted brother, they got into a spat, which left him, I think, like bruised on his face. And, you know, DCFS, if they see something, they're going to say something. And it became a big thing of, well, we, we, we don't believe he's, you know, going to be safe in this home. And when it was all said and done, he was removed, but my adopted brother and I were not. After that, my little sister in 2001, she came into our family at, like I said, about a week old. So essentially from the time she was here, she was born, she became one of us and uh, has been in our family and been adopted since the age of one and just grew up with us naturally. And that's that that was the dynamic growing up in Chicago. And then when they moved away, they did other things, but we not talking about that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Cause I just really wanted to get grounded on like how your family was constructed. It sounds mm -hmm. like you know, there was, um, a bit of fostering, but then also this adoption piece as well. And what kept coming up in my head, especially when you talk about being the black sheep in the family is whether or not individuals were treating your family according to the fact that you were fostering mm -hmm. and adopting. Mm -hmm. these um, people. I'm just curious. 
I mean, I, 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 I don't know that they necessarily were treating us differently because of that. I do feel like there's probably a dynamic of me not knowing my story and just assuming that I belonged, you know, quote unquote, that may have, I don't know, it may have allowed them to see things differently. Maybe they were in a wheelhouse of, well, he ain't really one of us because he was adopted too and he just don't know it. Or, you know, I, I don't know. I can't speak to like that level of it, but as far as the direct, you know, family, as far as me being involved at age 11 and then that process starting, it wasn't because of any of that, that they were treating us the way they were. That was just the way they treated us. You mentioned the word belonging, and that's such a big key word. Of course, you know everything that you know now, but at the time when you were growing up, did you feel a sense of belongingness in your immediate family? I did, but I also was always, I was always speculating that there was something I didn't know. I can easily, I can easily say this. Um, I'm, I'm both an empath and I've been blessed with like divine intuition on things. So if I walk into a situation and something don't feel right, it immediately hits me and I'm like, I don't need to be in this room. Let me go over there. <laughs> because I, this circle ain't ain't for me. And even at a young age, that kind of existed with me. So even though I didn't understand what that all meant, I knew being a part of my family that there was something that was just a little different, a little, you know, not like everyone else. And funny enough, if we look at a picture of my mom and my mom and me at a younger age, I feel like we look alike. Everybody else feels like we look alike. So it doesn't seem like, you know, there's anything that could give you the notification that we are different. Mm -hmm. Plus I very much do take after my dad's side of the family in many ways, but baby Darius looked like Diane. <laughs> that, that's just, that's how that worked. And, you know, there was no mistaking it, but I, I, I would say, yeah, that, that, Funny enough, there were things that I would find and things that I would encounter throughout my life that kind of showed me, um, something's going on, but I don't know if that's something. Still, say, say more about that. We're, we're I would gladly that. say more. I would gladly. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, every black, every good black household got a curio stand yeah. and Inside that curio stand, they're usually important papers underneath for documents because don't nobody believe in file cabinets. That's just not a thing that we do. So me being the adventurous child that I am, I'm exploring and looking at stuff. And at about age eight or nine, I think it was, I came across a birth certificate. And this birth certificate had a different name but it had my birthday. Do I remember what that name is? No, because when you're a child, this is weird. And I read goosebumps, so this could mean anything. And I don't want to get into this because R.L. Stein ain't going to send me off into the 17th dimension. I'm not doing that. See, you know what I'm talking about. I was, I was reading them stories. I was watching Erie, Indiana on Fox Kids, you know, getting scared over stuff that wasn't real. 
Um, and I'm like, I'm not, no, I'm not one of them and I'm not going to stumble into something that I don't need to know about. So I put it away and never looked for it again. But maybe about a couple of years later, my mom had written a prayer on an index card. And I don't know if she was praying for somebody else, but the way it was phrased, and I still, I've been trying to remember the phrasing on this all my life and cannot recall it. Um, the way it was phrased, it seemed like it was connected to her child, but the child's name was different than mine. And at that point, we hadn't started adopting yet. So I didn't know what that was about. But as I got older, I learned more factors about her experience trying to have children. And after hearing that, I was like, okay, well, maybe this is just a deeper connection thing for her and she's doing something that I just am not privy to. So I'm not going not gonna to worry about it. I'm just going to keep going through life and we're going to figure out whatever needs to be figured out if there's a time to do that. But again, I was extremely young at that point and not really, you know, putting two and two together. And I'm throw this on out here. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it because when we talk about it, it's going to be important. I'm going to save it. Okay. Well, shoot, I'm, I want to get to that part. I want to know what that was. I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I'm telling you. I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm telling you. I love it. So you you go through life, so you find some things, but nothing that nothing that was enough to make you want to dig or ask more questions. Nothing that was so crazy and outlandish, like, oh, I need to look into this. So you go on about your life, about your business, living your best young adult life. Right. And then something happens at 24. What happened? Actually, here's what's funny. I did. I was doing research for something. I found out it was 23. It was Ooh. actually a year earlier. And I can call the date because I was searching. December 1st, 2009. I had come home from college. At this point, my mom was getting ready to walk away from the house because the housing crisis had hit. And, you know, everybody was going through it. So... I decided, okay, forget this piece of paper. My my family home is more important, you know, because I really like the movie Soul Food and having a home Big that is a central house. location for the family makes too much sense to me. So came home, was there for about a year, then December hits. And I get a message on Facebook. And that message is entitled Long Lost Family. Uh <laughs> And it says, I'm looking for someone, but I'm really not sure of their name. But I thought I would just take a chance and ask, are you related to my uncle? And I saw the name and I'm like, okay, well, she must be relating it to my last name because that would be the only way she would speculate, you know, whatever. And I said, uh, Colquitt? Yeah, that's my uncle. And she goes, Oh my God, I've been looking for you forever. I'm so glad to find you. I've really been trying to get in touch with him and your mother, Diane. Now, at this point, I have not said my mother's name. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, you really do know my people. So let me just go ahead and let people know you're looking for them. I don't know what this is about, but uh, okay. Um, and I go to my mom. <laughs> So and she said, didn't say in that initial message, 
the relationship like no no he was in relation to anybody okay it was no no relationship indicated nothing was given to say you know hey you you mine mm-hmm. um <laughs> so i go to my mom and she says and i quote i don't know that woman on your facebook and <laughs> wait say it one more wow. time <laughs> I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get that. Cause then I go, uh, are you sure? Because she, she, she called you by name. I didn't tell her your name. And she goes, I don't know who that woman is. That's a lion voice through the nasal. Oh, oh, trust, trust. There are things you never forget in life, and that is one of them. So after hearing, I don't know that woman on your Facebook, I, I was like, okay, let me go to the other person that she indicated, and that's him. And I send him a message and I say, yo, this woman looked me up looking for you. I don't understand why, but whatever. She found me on here, you know, message me back. He sees it, doesn't say anything for like, I don't know, half a day. And then that evening I get a message that says, go to your settings and block her immediately. This woman means you no good. Go to your settings and block her. Wow. And now, me being who I am, you know, a kid of the 90s who was exploring everything that they can figure out, I'm looking at both extremes. You said you don't know her. You said she means me no good. There's something that both of y'all together have not said to me. And now I want to know. So I type back to her and I go, hey, weird stuff happening don't really know what's going on. And at that point, things started like reoccurring to me. Um, The document I have found, the different names that I came across, and then one very specific instance. And that was when uncle was driving me home one time before the big blow up um, at at my grandmother's funeral. And while in the car on the Dan Ryan on the way back south, he says to me, and I've forgotten this for years, but he says to me, and this is the thing, by the way, this is the thing. (laughs) He says to me, you know, I'm your daddy, right? Now, at that point, I'm just thinking crazy Uncle Hank at that point. How old were you at that point? I was about uh, seven. This was before the blow up. This was the same year, but before the blow up um so i'm like uh okay and i'm just going on supposed to answer that you know what i'm saying like when when somebody just i don't know how are you supposed to respond i don't know what he was looking for but i do know that i hardly see you and you listen to music that's different from my family and always wear suits there's something up with you um (laughs) so you know that i just okay and didn't think about it And now years later, as I'm writing this message, all of that occurs to me. And the next thing I say is, I don't know what's happening, but I think I might have an idea of who you are. And she says, I'm sure you do because you seem very, very smart. I won't say anything. I'll let everyone talk to you when it's time. Have a blessed day. The very next day, I got a message from him saying, uh, no, no, he called me. He called me. He said, uh, listen, there, there are some truths that need to come to the light. 
And if you want these truths, then you drive up here and you come see me. Don't talk to your mama. I'm like, oh, at this point, like, what are right. we talking about? Right. Yeah, yeah. And I and and I'm and I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling his energy. And I know it's because I didn't, you know, brought this person up and now I'm having thoughts. And by this point, I had been doing a lot of theater in town. So I was always driving up to the north side anyway. So I went and told my mom, yo, I got a rehearsal on the north side. She said, okay. And I just hopped in the car, went straight to his house. And that's when he told me the full story of how I actually came to be. Now, real quick, before you go into that, that gap between him calling you and this woman reaching out on Facebook and telling you, you know, be blessed. Right. <laughs> they, they tell you. So there's that window, this overnight period. What were your feelings and thoughts in that window of time? I have this thing about me where even if something is like critically bothering me, but I have something else important to do, I push it to the back. And I had a script to memorize <laughs> and I had ducats to get. So as far as I was concerned, I have work to do. And if this, whenever this is gonna come to its, you know, brand finale then it'll show up but right now i have shit to do excuse my language oh um, no you're fine we look we curse on here <laughs> well well damn it i got shit to do <laughs> and and honestly that's what it was so i was like okay well whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen and i'll figure it out when i do i wasn't talking to that woman who was long lost family diane didn't know who she was <laughs> and and i hadn't received the come get the truth for me yet. And yeah, it was just a thing of, okay, whatever. It, it'll it'll come to pass when it comes to pass. And I think that night I just laid down, watched my script and watched, uh, listen, watched, read my script and watched RuPaul's Drag Race. I think that was like my evening that night. <laughs> so drove up there, he, uh, he said, hey, here's the story. And what it came down to was, here we go. At the point that, I was born, my mother, Diane, had had nine miscarriages. Mm -hmm. She was trying desperately to have a child and it was not coming to pass. Well, let me back up a little bit, actually. Before I was born, he, Diane and my father, or the man I knew was my father, they all worked together. And there was a woman that worked with them who was Miss Longlaw's family. And she already was married and had two other kids. And her husband became abusive. So she needed a out. She needed somewhere to go. And uncle saw this and said, let me help you. And did move her to somebody else's house. Wasn't even with him. Was with somebody at somebody else's house, made sure she was getting everything she needed. Um, and as time went on, they got closer, got a little too close, like real, real close. And nine months later, baby Darius appears. But six months into that period, she says, I can't do this anymore. I have to go back with my husband 
because this ain't right. And when this baby's born, I'm giving him up for adoption. My uncle says, no, no, no. When this baby's born, you're bringing him to me. And she goes into labor. He's getting ready to go to the hospital, pick me up. My grandmother at this point was sick with cancer. She was taking care of herself, her mother, and her sister. And she's like, ain't no way in hell I can help you take care of a baby. By the time it was time for me to be born, he was not on the you know right side of uh, living at all. He was an alcoholic at that point. He was in and out of jobs. He was living with them and it was just not coming together. And my grandmother put a stop to it, said, no, no, it ain't happening here. I don't, you're gonna have to figure something out. So I'm born. She's, she calls him, says, your son's here, hangs up. Literally the conversation as he tells me. Um, he goes to the hospital, 10 fingers, 10 toes, two eyes and nose. Okay, we all good. I'm coming to get him tomorrow. He comes back tomorrow to come get me. She has disappeared with me. Doesn't say anything, doesn't talk to him for like, I think two months he says. And then all of a sudden shows up at my grandmother's house with me in tow, <laughs> drops me off. And we don't hear from her ever again until she writes me a message on Facebook. Uh-huh, yeah, all of that, that's yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So our <laughs> we know y'all can't see us. Our like we we're, we're stuck right now. I don't even know what to say. What did you say when you heard this story? Um. First things first. I went outside because and because I was at an age where I was doing that. I went outside and smoked a cigarette. Uh, <laughs> it was just too much. And I couldn't sit there and just pretend like my whole world wasn't different now. So I, you know, went outside, took a breather, came back in. He said, Is there more? Is there, you got any questions? Anything you want to know? I said, Uh, hell yeah. Um, how did I end up with them? He says, Well, because I couldn't take care of you, and Diane had been trying to have a child they stepped up and said, we'll take him. That way you wouldn't go in the system. You would still be with your family. And, you know, either way it goes, you would connect to us no matter what. So I essentially became Peter Parker or, 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 or um, to mention a better one, Miles Morales. But yeah, my uncle and aunt essentially raised to me. And I didn't know that until the age of 23. And yeah. Yeah, uh, that's that's just what that was. And of course, now I'm at a point where after hearing all this, I have to process these emotions. Yeah. They're big emotions. And I've been through a lot of stuff, a whole lot of stuff, a lot of crazy stuff. And I now have to figure out what to do with this. And I'd already been saying all my life, my life is a sitcom. It's just that the audience is laughing when I'm not. And this was one of those moments where I was like, I don't know if they're laughing. I don't know if they're cheering. I don't know what's happening, but they just got some compelling shit. So I took all that. Everybody was scared because they didn't know how I was going to react. And 
I did what I knew how to do. And the one thing I've always known how to do all my life is create. I've been an artist since the age of six. The first thing I ever did was irritate my mom into making her believe that I could do everything that people did on TV. Usually by pulling on her shirt and saying, I can do that. I can do that. Mama, 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 I can do that. And she eventually said, let's see if you can. And at the age of six, I was already acting. I had gotten two Subway commercials. I was in a made for TV movie with Oprah Winfrey and Maya Angelou and Keith David that was filmed in the Henry Horner projects when they still existed. I was doing a slew of different things because I was, you know, this talented kid. And I had made up in my mind a long time ago that I wanted to be an artist. This is what I want to do. I've now been in this room and I've seen these people do what they do and it's everything to me. So now I want to learn how to act and I want to learn how to sing and I want to learn how to do all of these things. And I did those things. By the time I hit high school, I had started writing. The first major play I wrote, which just got produced a few months ago, the second time, was this piece about 9-11, which nobody expected me to be able to process. But I took two of my friends because I had been acting been performing. We got together, interviewed 100 people, and we got all their reactions, turned it into a show featuring eight characters. So for me, artistry is everything. It's in everything I do. It's how I live my life. It's how I make my money. It's all things for me. If I'm not performing, I'm teaching. That's just my life. And at this point, because I'm writing, I have to write this. I have to write it all down. I can't just say it to people. I have to write down how I feel. And that's what I did. I took the next, what, three, four years after that. And I pinned my one man show, which was a production about me and my parents growing up on the south side of Chicago, going through the things we went through. The, the title of it is Till the World Blow Up, a South Side Love Story. That's the title. That phrase comes from the fact that my dad used to say, I love you till the world blow up. And that was just how we communicated it. I love you, I love you too, how much to the world blow up. And that was what it was for years. At 23, my world just blew up. It literally just blew up in my face. So what am I gonna do with that? And I took all that. That was the first half of the script up until the up, up, up until I say the world blew up. Second half is about my adoption and telling that story and how I'm processing it. And it wasn't until my best friend died of cancer that I was able to finish it. And it was based on a question that he asked me. He asked me after a show, how do you feel now that you know everything? I took that and I thought real long and hard about it because I was at writer's block. I didn't know how to finish the damn thing. And after thinking about it, I honestly looked around and said, I feel the same. Yeah, there's a new history, but I feel the same. And I feel the same because at the end of the day, I was way more blessed than a lot of other people that go through this experience. A lot of folks, they lose their family forever, never see them, never see them again, never know where they came from. And then at age 50, they're tracing back, you know, to figure out what happened to me, where am I really from? 
I knew where I was from. I was just one doorstep over and didn't, you know, know it until I knew it. And for me, it was a thing of, I look at my mom and she's the hero of this story to me. She is the absolute hero of this story because everybody else didn't know what to do with me. Everybody else had no clue. Like what are we gonna take him? What are we gonna do with him? What, what, we don't know. She stepped up when nobody else would. She stepped up when at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> what was I gonna do? Pick up a knapsack Hollywood and bust at the age of what, a week? You know, what, what was I, there was not, there were no decisions that I could make. And honestly, that was the, that was what I came to. Y'all made a decision for a baby. And honestly, if I were in y'all shoes, it was probably the best decision that could have been made at that moment of y'all being young adults and not knowing what the hell you were doing. <laughs> now, would I have opted to tell this child earlier? Sure. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> um, and they did say that they attempted to tell me on several occasions and it just never worked out the way they expected. But I often do wonder if that woman had not sent me that message on that particular day, would I know? Would I know? And I have no clue. I really don't. I know I just gave you a whole lot. I know. <laughs> Thank you for, for all of it. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many pieces within this story. I mean, like just with, with foster care, with adoption, you know, in, in your situation, like I, I read this as fictive kin, because like we were talking about this, um, Sandra and I last week or so, just like, oh, okay, like, you know, I'm giving my child over to family friends, right? So like a, a play mama, a play uncle, a whomever, right? And mm -hmm. you're trusting that relationship in order to be able to take care of your child. And, you know, just, you're also like a late discovery adoptee. Like you, you have like, like all the things thrown into um, the mix when it comes to your story. Now, in thinking about how old, you know, with finding out, and it sounds like you've been truly empathetic and compassionate to all sides here. So, you know, your birth parents, your adoptive parents. For the most part. <laughs> okay. So, so talk about that. Like, why is it for the most part? I'm empathetic mostly with Diane, my mom, adoptive mom, if we must make labels, because at the end of the day, like I said, she sacrificed the most. And it was something that she wanted more than anything to be a mother. So I count myself blessed that I not only got to be with somebody who had the spirit to be nurturing, but also cared enough where even if it wasn't from her being, she could still find a place for me. So I acknowledge her and I, I hold her in high regard in that place with her husband, my uncle Ben, if you will. Um, I am, um, I'm not as empathetic because yes, you are of the bloodline that I come from, but you are the least involved. I really don't have much to say to you. It was your brother that, you know, made this happen, but I, have, I, I really don't have much to say to you. 
at the end of the day, you chose, not really chose because it's a disease, but you were um, so caught up in the idea of addiction and everything that you were going through that you weren't here to make major decisions or, you know, be a part of the raising per se. You were just kind of, like I said, a guest star, <laughs> a revolving, you know, a reoccurring guest star in my life. Um, with uncle, I used to have a real, real strong connection to him because he is my father. It was, it, it was a thing of, I do want to learn more about you. And I do want to be as deeply involved as I should have been a long time ago. And I always knew you were cool, but now I'm figuring out why. I'm figuring out why this feeling or this, you know, these residual things all make sense. I look at old pictures, I look exactly how he looked in his youth. And that in itself, like, frightens me, but also compels me to explore deeper into all of that stuff. But unfortunately, with time, a separation has occurred again, because that's who he's always been, a person to back away and just not be involved. And I'm not sure where that comes from, especially when I've really, really tried my damnedest to be there. Um, I know I was going through a hard point in life, and I actually had been couch hopping for a while and he had an extra room and he said, yeah, maybe we can see what we can do. And then I didn't hear from him ever again. And I didn't know what that was about. So if you, you know, if you ain't here for my lows, then I ain't worried about you in my highs. That's just, that's what that is. With long lost family, I feel really um, drained from that experience. And that comes from, um, it all happened, it all occurred, everything you wanted came to pass, everything's out in the open. The first time I'm supposed to meet you, and this is gonna be deep, so be ready, y'all. The first time I'm supposed to meet you, we end up canceling because your fiance had a heart attack and died on that day. So now you have to plan his funeral, <laughs> can't come meet me, and the first day I meet you is at his funeral because you've invited me to come. I already felt like it was a weird thing to do. I don't know these people. I don't know you very well, but everybody know Leakin' Sons and that's where y'all were. So. <laughs> We're not doing this with you. Tell the truth, shame the, shame the devil. That's what they say. Look, I don't know you, you don't know me, but we all know Leakin' Sons. So we are gonna meet over there. <laughs> And we're going to have this moment, I guess. And I walk in the building, of course. And instead of everybody looking up at the casket, everybody's looking back at me, walk in, because apparently word then got around that Rose, that's her name, done found her son. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm hearing whispers as I come in and sit in the back. Ooh, ooh, that's Rose. That's a that's her baby boy. Ooh, ooh, shit. Ooh, look just like her too. Look at him. And, and doing all of that. Instead of like looking at the guy who passed away, he over there. Look up there. Oh my goodness. Um, Stay for the repast. Like, where, did y'all sit we, together and talk over chicken wings and meatballs? Like, can we do that? And of course, at this point, now I'm like, I don't want none of this. I don't, I, 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 I knew it felt bad, but now it just feels like I'm in some kind of freak show and I don't want to be a part of that. I'm not being paid to perform, so stop looking at me. Um, 
And they all walk out and she's walking up the aisle, short little woman. And she walks over to me and she gives me a hug and she tells me, thank you for coming. I appreciate you being here. I said, no problem. And then they walk out and of course they're going to the cemetery to do their thing. And I've already reserved in my mind, I can't go to this repast. I just can't do this. It's not happening. I'm gonna have to meet her a different day. Can't do it. And as I'm walking out, some woman who claims to be my cousin asks me for a ride. I don't know who you are. I've never met you in my life. I, you you might be from the other side of the family. I don't really know who you are, but you asked for a ride and you going down the street. So I gave her a ride down the street because it felt like the good Christian thing to do. And honestly, that was the last time I saw my mother. After that, there were a few correspondents on the Book of Faces. And after that, she dropped off the face of the earth, reappeared later through my aunt, her sister, telling me she had cancer and she wanted to hear from me. And I was just thrown. I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this right now. Communication was open. You killed it, got remarried, all kind of craziness. I was talking to my brothers, the two boys that she had before me. I was in touch with them for a while and was actually supposed to go visit them because they don't even live in Chicago. They live in uh, Quad Cities, Monet, Illinois. So I was supposed to go down and see them and that never took off. And then I just stopped hearing from them except for the middle child, my next brother in line, who will message me every once in a while just to say, hey. But other than that, I don't hear from them. I have not talked to them. And y'all have been the biggest catalyst for this whole thing even happening. And what for? What 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 was the whole thing for at this point? I yeah, I don't that, know. That was gonna be my point because you mentioned you know this, this phrase about you know till the world blow up right, and so these people have started a domino effect of events in your life, yeah. blew up your life, and it was for what purpose? And mm -hmm. so even though as a late discovery adoptee myself. And me being on the side of wishing I had known sooner or just wishing I had known period, <laughs> you know, right. let's start there. Wishing I had known period and then sooner or later, you know, is, is the other debate. But being in that situation where you were kind of in your, you were in your safe bubble. Your, your mother had protected you. Your family had protected you. You were living your life without this information. And then people came and blew up the spot and yeah. what so it's like your uncle is quick to have you come over get the the full origin story but then now he's back in and out of your life so that's like a secondary rejection and then you got long lost family who reaches out but doesn't even seem to be reaching out for the intent of establishing a relationship so it's like, well, what was it all for? Mm -hmm. Y'all gave me this information. Now I know everything, but now y'all aren't even trying to be in the picture. Right. Where was your mom in all of this? Did you two have conversations or did you get a sense from her that she felt 
bad to see your world blow up like this? Um, I would say yes. Yes. Because uh, because her main thing was she was scared that because I knew everything that I wouldn't love her anymore. So, and, and in so many words, that's how she expressed it. But the thing that I can really say thank you for to her is that she gave me the room within my young adulthood to explore these options and figure these things out for myself. She didn't try to interfere and say, look, don't do this because X, Y, Z. She didn't try to hold me back from looking into these relationships because hell, at the end of the day, let's say I end up with a, I don't know, a debilitating, you know, disease and medically because you aren't really family, you can't help me, but they can. Or perhaps there's something that I go through later in life that I don't know is a, you know, a hereditary thing that could be happening with them, but I don't have that relationship, so I can't figure those things out. While all of these things were happening, she was very much present, just waiting in the wings, waiting for me to come to her, as opposed to trying to, you know, inoculate my life with all of these, you know, um, um, fix-its. She wasn't trying to fix it. You know, she, she, she was allowing it to be whatever it was going to be. Just like I, in my nature, allow it to be what it's gonna be. And at the end of the day, if we gotta adjust or do whatever, then we do what we gotta do. But at least it naturally developed in the way it should. So yeah, I, I think of all people, like I said, she handled it with the most grace, the most care, and also in all of that, the most freedom. Whereas everyone else was bound to their past or bound to their experience or bound to, you know, their reasoning without ever really being clear about what they wanted from this, if they wanted anything from it. So yeah, I I take all of them with a grain of salt, honestly. That's that that's where I stand with them. If you hear, you hear. Okay, hey, good to see you. If you're not, then don't stand in my way. At this point, I, I, I have two businesses to run. I have a life of my own I have to keep together and try to, you know, focus in on. I got a podcast to finish and get together in my own world and in my own time. Um, I have missions. I have missions in life because I'm now I'm now 35 years old. I am I am qualified to be president. I don't want to be, but I'm qualified because I'm the age now. And at this point, decisions have to be made and things have to be done. And I don't have the time to waste on you right now. I don't. I don't. And 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 and, and I don't feel afraid to say that anymore. I, I actually got into a conversation with my mom the other day, and it was hilarious to me. Um, I had just closed the show. It was a virtual thing. And she told me she was going to watch it, and she didn't. And I was like, uh, okay, so I know you didn't watch it. What's going on? Cause you know, I see all the names that roll in, you know, I know who, I know who donated their ducats and you didn't show up. What's going on? And she hit me with this text. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I was busy. I didn't get around to it, even though I extended it so she could see it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and it became a thing of, um, send me the link and I'll make a donation to the company. And I say to her, okay. 
not a problem. I'll send you the donation link. I'll send you the video to watch for free. But understand, it's not just you. It is any and everybody who says to me they're going to do something and then they don't do it. I am now in a point in my life where I am holding every single person involved with me 100% accountable all the time. All the time. I, it ain't no love lost. It ain't, you know, I, I ain't angry at you. It ain't nothing like that. But if I can be a man of my word in every single thing I've ever done, well, then I'm going to need you to be the same. Show up when you say you're going to show up. Do what you say you're going to do. And I'm just going to make sure I hold you accountable. Period. And to that point of accountability, because of your experience, are you now holding people accountable to being completely honest with you requirement now? I mean, I, I, I would absolutely say yes. Um, I have I have lived <laughs> I have lived a life that was shrouded with lies in many ways. Many, many cover ups, many, you know, fix it's many false walls that we've all broken through and found new information. I am no longer a part of that anymore. I'm not. I'm not. I would rather you tell me the truth to my face immediately than feel like you got to hold something back for a period of time because I can't take it well. No, no, no. Tell me the truth. The first time, <laughs> you know, because honestly, if, if we don't do that, then are we truly being our highest and best selves? I don't think we are. I should be able in my human experience to come to you in your human experience and tell you exactly what I feel at this moment. You may get mad, you may feel some kind of way, but at the end of the day, nothing was, no, no words were meant, nothing was held back, and we all know how to move from here. And that's in every situation, close relationships, business, um, the education system, I don't care where you are, hold people accountable. If a teacher is teaching you something incorrectly, hold them accountable and say, no, that fact is wrong. Actually, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, because I did research and I did my homework. Uh, you should know this, that, and other. Hold people accountable. They may get in their feelings, <laughs> but that don't mean nothing at the end of the day, especially if a fact is a fact. So yeah, accountability for me entirely. Your story has not disappointed in terms of... <laughs> Listen, I the need to see the one man play. I need volume one and two. Is video, YouTube, where can I see it? I can tell you this. There are, there are segments of it available on the YouTube. Um, I will give you this, though. At the end of my show, I have this piece that I do. Well, actually, it's not at the end. It's at the beginning of the second act. And it's called Long Lost Family, of course. I say, for every waking moment, I can see a new date. And for every slippery slope inside this life that I skate, for every walk in the sun and every claim that I stake, for every time I tried to move ahead and life told me wait, for every drop of sweat I pour and every breath that I take until these wheels no longer turn and I no longer create, this tested testimony keeps me on my narrow and straight. And my family, lost or found, is what makes me great. 
There you go. <laughs> you got that for you got that one for the free. You got that one for the free. Listen, we 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 love free game. Thank you. <laughs> yes. For real. And this is one of the reasons why like I absolutely love this podcast because I feel like people are able to tap into what makes sense for them, right? Or as my mother would say, eat the fish and, and spit out the bones. Because what I'm hearing from you today too is like some adoptees get like very angry at the adoptive parents, right? For not providing them with information or bidding information. Your experiences of, of this is different, right? So yours is like, okay, I completely understand and, and empathize with why my, you know, adoptive mother did what it is that she had to do. Others don't necessarily feel that same way. Mm. On the flip side too, where we try so much to kind of like try and figure out what to do with these biological people and really trying to make them fit in. It's like, I've heard from you like, you know, I'm good, you know, and that's hard. That's hard. So it's like, I appreciate hearing you say that because I think so many of us are like, we feel bad if we don't want to connect in certain ways or if we come across certain things where it's like, that's not for me. So mm -hmm. yes, we may share blood, but what you do or how you move is not in alignment with how I'm choosing to live my life exactly. and to walk away from it it can be a lot you know it's an emotional you know thing and the other piece too that I'm hearing from you that's just really sitting with me is mm -hmm. your ability at this point to pour into your craft yes. this entire situation because I mean, we're over here like laughing about it, right? Like it, it, it really is all of our defense mechanism in this shit. Of course, right. Like, this is serious. Ain't nothing funny. <laughs> hey, there's nothing fun. Ain't nothing funny. Right, right. <laughs> about any of this. And the fact that you've been able to take your story and your experience and pour back into your artistry, I tip my hat to you because your story is enough for somebody to be in the corner, I, I'm two minutes off this honey bun that we were talking about, <laughs> and in the fetal position. Like, let's just the fetal position, like your story would have taken some people out. And that's not to say, you know, you didn't have to process it and, and do the things, but in the yeah. processing, you did not let that stop your life. You mm. fueled it like that, all that energy, the questions, the, all of it you just put into your art. For me, that's the powerful takeaway. Art as a healing mechanism. You learned this truth about yourself that helped you become more you. You were already you. You were already an artist. You were already creative. And so this was just like another piece that added to who you already are. And so now you get to show up in the world even more yourself which is what i think we all really want like how can i be more me how can i be right. doper you know as if that's possible but yes we gonna get doper <laughs> so right you got to take all of that no matter what they threw at you and you used it in such a profound and beautiful way and i'm excited to see this production be 
remount it, like really give it the stage that it deserves because I think everything happens in divine timing. And we're in a season where we're hearing black adoption experiences. We're hearing these voices, they need to be elevated. They need higher platforms. So it doesn't matter if you wrote this whenever you wrote it and came out with it when you first came out with it, like now is the time where I think right. it will be received the way that you intentioned for it to be received. So I'm excited to see it. I hope we can help be a part of it. We ain't got a lot of Dunkins, but if we can be <laughs> a sponsor, <laughs> we can do something because the world needs to see this. We need to hear more stories, especially you as a black man <laughs> telling these stories, like we need this. So thank you for just being so generous and not, not being crippled, not, allowing this blow up to make you explode or implode yeah. you're actually able to gift the world with something beautiful so thank you absolutely and i and i will say this just to leave it on a note even though i'm now able to talk about all of these things with you know an edge of comedy or whatever that doesn't mean while enduring them it was easy so that that that's something that you know I want to make sure I get across to anybody who may listen to this. It's not that it was easy. It was that I found my way to deal with it in a way that worked for me. Yes, I have anxiety up the wazoo. I have depression that will show up and rear its ugly head at any particular moment. I have a number of things that I deal with personally with my health and with my circumstances, but when it's all said and done, I keep remembering, don't look at the blockade, look at the blessing. There are things that are meant to be obstacles. There are things that are meant to stand in your way, that are meant to slow you down, that are meant to hold you up. And they're there because you're supposed to learn something from them. You are supposed to go through this thing to come out the other side and say, okay, well, now I know why I dealt with that. And let me put that on the scroll and keep on moving. Because at the end of the day, we are all trying, like you said, we all trying to glow up. We all trying to get to our highest and best selves. That's what we all about out here. And again, like I said earlier, that's why I commend y'all for doing the work that you do on this podcast. Because if people don't have an outlet, then they don't feel compelled to speak. That's, that, 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 that's why my, um, my theater company exists the way it does. Because we as Black folks, we as the BIPOC community, our LGBTQI brothers and sisters, everybody has a voice and they have something to say. But for too long, for far too long, we have shifted the narrative to people that are only out to, you know, get a dime or a dollar, that are only out to grow their own empire and not consider the other folks that are along for the ride. That you know, are, are more concerned about hearing the same old damn story over and over again, but not giving somebody with actual breadth of knowledge on important subject matters, especially the things that we're talking about here. We're not giving them the, the proper avenues to actually explore it and create something that could mean something for somebody else. I want everybody to have their one man production or one woman production or one person production. I want everybody to be able to stand in front of someone and say, here's my truth. 
take it or leave it. And if you can't do that, even with your closest friends, then you know how how do we ever expect that we'll be able to do it on platforms like this? So we 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 all have to usher folks in and 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 you know we have to do the hard work so that other folks can do the hard work. It it's it's all a process. So again, I commend y'all. I thank y'all for this time. I thank you for caring about the stories that need to be heard and also feeding into people's lives because honestly i'm pretty sure i'm gonna get off this call with y'all and i'm gonna go cry for a little bit because hmm. it felt good to release it to somebody who actually gives a damn at the end of the day it's not just for you know fame or show or anything it's it, it's for healing it's for people to heal because somebody's gonna hit this later and say damn that's a parallel or damn that makes sense and we don't have that unless we have the platform. So thank you for the platform. Listen, you make me want to go into a sermon. I'm going to be before y'all long. <laughs> we going to get out of here. One. The church are open. You spoke a whole word and we, we received that. We receive it. And yes, we want to do the hard work, like you said, to help other people do their hard work so we all can heal and mm -hmm. blow up. And your voice has contributed to this mission. So we want to thank you, Darius Colquitt. You're the bomb.com. Thank you for going black to the beginning. Peace <laughs> Thank you, folks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast with Dr. Sam and Sandria. If you want more Black to the Beginning, follow at Black to the Beginning and hashtag Black and Adopted on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you would like to share your Black adoption experience, check out our Instagram at Black to the Beginning and click the link in our bio. Remember, the Black adoption conversation is the Black family conversation. These discussions can be difficult, but necessary for generational healing. Let's keep the conversation going for the culture. <laughs>